0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Eunice Hunton-Carter pursued her dreams at a time when few others of her race and gender could. It was the 1930s, and she, as part of Thomas Dewey's mob-busting prosecution team, helped convict Charles Lucky Luciano, she later served as a legal advisor to the early United Nations. My guest today is passionate about her subject. Marilyn Greenwald is author, along with Yoon Lee, of Eunice Hunton Carter, A Lifelong Fight for Social Justice, published by Empire State Editions, Fordham University Press. For everything about Marilyn Greenwald, and to order the book, go to eunicecarterbio.com and you can follow Marilyn on Twitter at mgreenwaldou. And Marilyn, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. How and why did you find out about your niece Hunton Carter and why is it that most people don't know about her and her contributions?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because it was just kind of a fluky thing. And I think a lot of people who who do books and research about people who aren't widely known, there's just some weird thing that happens that introduces you to them. And with us, my family and I were at a wedding. My niece was getting married in, in Las Vegas. Well, weddings are like three days now, right? There's brunches and dinners and and the wedding. So my family and I were, um, in the middle of, you know, before the wedding, we had like six hours to kill in Las Vegas, six or seven hours. What are we going to do? You know, we didn't want to go to the strip again. And, um, I happened to be reading in the New York Times that day online, which was weird. If you're ever in Las Vegas, you should go to the mob museum. And it was just a fluky thing. And I'm at the breakfast table and I'm saying to my relatives, you know, maybe we should go here. And it's it's close to the strip, you know, it's it's easy to get to. So we said, sure, why not? And we we drove over there and we expected some kind of campy thing, right? Like, oh, isn't this funny? It's and it's not. It's a serious museum. I say it's like one of the Smithsonians. I mean it's huge, it's very serious. And um, so we started going through it and we're like, wow, this is really fascinating. In fact, we were kind of regretting we only had three or four hours. But anyway, so we're going through and having a great time. And there was one exhibit it, kind of in a tiny room to itself. It was on the 36th mob trial. Um, Thomas Dewey was special prosecutor and people know it because of Lucky Luciano. And so we're looking at it and reading about it. And we see the 20 attorneys like they're supposedly the best attorneys in New York handpicked by Dewey. And this is who got lucky Luciano. And it was this great thing because, you know, it was hard to get the mob then. Uh, You know, they they were very slippery. So we were looking at their pictures, their framed pictures one by one. And and we're watching white guy, white guy, white guy. And they all looked like they were in their 30s, you know, white guy, white guy. And then there was a black woman. She looked young, but she was a black woman. and, And, you know, my husband and I paused and I just turned to him and I said, There's got to be a story behind this, you know. But I was working on something else then, so I couldn't do it. But I thought, well, maybe at some point. Well, two or three years pass. I'm done with what I was working on, and I contacted the Mob Museum, and I didn't even remember her name. And I said, well, there was this woman, and she she was in the Mob. And and they emailed me. well, of course we know who she was, you know. And they gave me her name, and they said, you know, Carter not only was on the team, but she made the link. She actually – Really was the one that clinched the case because because of her research, which we could get to in a minute, what she did. But um, so then one thing led to another, and I said, "Has anybody done anything on her?" Well, there were there no books? And she, there were some things in anthologies. You know, you might read a page about her, you know, somewhere now and then. But there, but there were no books about her. And so that's in a nutshell. That's when we started. That's when I started doing the research, and then. I can tell you in a minute how I got my, my partner in the research, but that's kind of in the, the introduction.
0: When you started, I was actually going to ask you a, a question relating to your partner in crime, like the way I tied that in that way, <laughs> so because of the mom museum. But anyway, <laughs> um, once you decided to get together to write the book, how did you and your co-author divide the work? How did you decide to pick the co-author and then how did you divide the work?
1: yeah, i'll I'll go to the second question first because I, I initially didn't have a co-author, and I never worked with a co-author for a book. I have for papers and things. And I you know, so I didn't think about it. And so I started doing research myself on her on Carter. And I found some things, and they were interesting. But what you really want when you do a, an in depth book is our papers, letters, you know, things like that. I couldn't really interview a lot of people. I mean, she was born, you know, 1899. So, so, you know, do the math. I mean, people, maybe grandchildren and stuff. But other than that, there was nobody to interview. So I'm doing this. I'm thinking, I don't think she's going to be a book. I think she's really interesting. I don't think she's going to book, be, a, you know, enough for a book. So at the time I was teaching and I had graduate students and I had one really talented graduate student who was just I called her a bulldog because she just really could research. And I said, you know, I can't find any papers or anything on her. And we kind of batted it around. I said, see what you can find. And she said, okay, you know, let me see what I can find. Well, what she ended up finding, she didn't find much on Eunice, but she found a lot on Thomas Dewey. And we were in journalism. I taught journalism. And she she found a lot on Thomas Dewey, and she said, you know, Thomas Dewey was really an interesting guy, and he really knew how to manipulate the press. Like he he had them wrapped around his little finger. And I said, you know, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, he apparently – said to the press after, you know, they 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 got this group together, of these attorneys to try to, you know, get them up. If you don't write anything about our investigation, which will take about a year, if, if you don't write anything about it, I will give you a huge story once the trial starts. So just, you know, other than maybe some housekeeping things like, oh, they're still they're still in it. And the press, these these top editors, including editors at The New York Times, agreed. And so my, you and my co-author, we were laughing. So can you imagine today saying, hey, don't write anything about this investigation. Or, the, you know, we were laughing because of Mueller investigations. Don't write anything about this. And then when we're done with it, we'll give you everything you want. So... So one thing led to another. When we got Dewey, we found out Dewey was really a fascinating character in many ways. And he had an archive. She went to the archive at the university.
0: But here's the thing. A lot of our listeners may not know who Thomas Dewey was. Oh, yeah, okay. So give us a little bit about yeah. Thomas Dewey. And then yeah, go.
1: Thomas Dewey, well, he was, not, not many people know he was prosecutor in New York. But people know, know of him because if you, there was a famous headline, um, Dewey beats Truman. He ran against Truman in 1948 and he was favored to win and he lost and, and, and the Chicago Tribune had a famous headline they were so sure he was going to win. but he was also three-term governor of New York. So people in New York do know who, who he is, you know could because he was three-term governor. but the, but the Dewey beats Truman is kind of a classic photo. But she you know so we, we're learning a little bit about Dewey who was this charismatic figure. but then I and then she she gave me a, a tip she said, you know, I found something Eunice wrote when she was early 20s. Anyway, one thing led to another and I did research and it turns out that Eunice's parents were these amazing pioneers in like the civil rights movement and, and, and social movements. Her father, William Hutton, if you look at any history of the YMCA, he's he's instrumental. He was the first, one of the first top black executives of the YMCA. He was from Canada and he almost single-handedly Integrated the YMCAs in, in this country. He was huge in the YMCA. Her mother was an author. She was in many social movements, including suffrage, because of you know her, her era. And she also went to France to aid black troops there at the end of World War I. And she wrote a book about it. Fascinating book, by the way. So, by the time we get Thomas Dewey, who was a fascinating character, by the time we got her mother, who did r- write a lot, so we had a lot of writings by her mother, we had letters that her father wrote her mother that are at Howard University. We just started getting one thing after another, and said, we-, we have a book here. And Eunice Carter was most of the book, but she certainly isn't all of the book. I mean, her and I often said, you know, her mother should have a book, you know, I mean, and, and she really was amazing. Her father, too. Now, her father died relatively young in his early 50s. I mean, but, but he, as I said, he's a well-known name if you ever studied the YMCA.
0: It's a fascinating history. And do you think it was because of her background with the type of parents she had that enabled her to accomplish what she did in the 30s?
1: Yes, her parents were both hugely, you know, supportive and they both were very, what's the word? They knew you, you couldn't get anywhere without education, both her parents. And one thing that I left out that's also fascinating, her grandfather, so her father's father, was a slave in Virginia and her father bought his freedom, moved to Canada because, of course, back then, even after the war, you didn't want to be a slave, a former slave in this country. He moved to to Canada, became kind of a wealthy real estate owner. And he was in this little enclave called Chatham of former slaves, most of them were former slaves. And in fact, if you're ever in Detroit about I don't know an hour, hour and a half north of Detroit, this this little village has a has a museum and it's fascinating and they have all kinds of things and including pictures and things of her grandfather Stanton Huntington. So Stanton had 9 I, keep forgetting, I think it was nine children. You have to go to school. You have you have to be educated. And on the other side of her family, her mother's father sent her to college, sent Addie, her mother, to college at a time when a lot of black people didn't go to college. So education was key to everybody in her family.
0: And then she goes on to law school, which again, because of that time, that era, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Which law school did she go to?
1: She went to Fordham, at night, so she was working as a social worker before she got her law degree. In fact, she got two degrees from Smith. This is another thing: a black student at Smith College, you know, back in thir- well, what, what was it? It must have been the mid twenties, early twenties. Well, that was she wasn't the first black student at Smith, but there weren't many. So she gets a degree in social work and a master's degree. She, she also got a master's degree in political science, but she she becomes a social worker goes to to college at night so and at this point she did just got married she had a little boy so here she was working she had a little bit you know I guess you know one or two three-year-old child she was really I don't know how she did it in fact my co-author and I were like can you imagine even back when you're in your 20s how do you do that And one more thing, and I wish we did a little bit of research on this, but not a lot. You know, even back then, a lot of black people couldn't get into a lot of law schools in the South. I mean, so there were only a handful of law schools you could go to if you were black. And Thurgood Marshall apparently was one of the people who led the charge in integrating these law schools, which I think, we know, we did a little bit of research on it, but that, that to me is fascinating.
0: You mentioned her parents as role models. Did she have other role models that you were able to discover through your research?
1: Yes and no. If you're familiar with Mary McLeod Bethune, she was an educator and she was one of the first people in F. Franklin Roosevelt's cabinet. Roosevelt was one of the first to have several black people, who if not, if not cabinet secretaries, who were instrumental in his administration. Mary Bethune was friends with Eleanor. And so that was a link. I don't want to say that Carter was friends with Eleanor, but she knew Eleanor. And so there was a little bit of an in that way. Now, that was later in her life. It wasn't when she was in her 20s. But her mother was an amazing role model for her now. A lot of it was, you know, she, her, she and her mother sometimes argued. There was the mother-daughter relationship. But the mother was a very, and it was a very strong personality. So a lot of her life, I think Eunice tried to please her mother. You know, and, and this was one of the reasons I think she did what, he, what she did because I don't think her mother would have accepted no less.
0: I want to go back to something you said that actually hit my brain, and, and I want to come back to it because we all know, and most of us know, the history in terms of World War II, and you had uh, black troops in Europe, but you were referring to World War One.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I didn't realize it, that there were black troops in World War One.
1: Yeah, well, she came to it, Addie came to it near the end of the war. And it was in France. And she she wrote a book about it. And was, was, you know, I don't want to be naive, but it it was kind of, it was eye opening because she said, you know, the people in France and the people in Europe actually treated the troops better than the Americans there. And, And it didn't appear that the racism among the French, and even the Germans, to some degree, you know other people that wasn't as strong as it appeared to be being their own colleagues, you know or their, the the people who who were Americans. and then there's the the whole business of black people and the way they were treated in the u s and should they should they be patriotic? Should they serve their country? I mean, that's a whole other issue. But she gets into
0: that also. Well, I was just surprised you know? that that occurred in World War One. I. I knew about World War Two, but didn't realize yeah. that was the case in yeah. World War I. So that's interesting.
1: Yeah, her book's interesting. If you you know, it's you can find it under her name, and she writes in great detail about her experiences.
0: When the two of you, when I say the two, you and your co-author were working on the book, and. She clearly, as you mentioned earlier, was a bulldog when it came to research. Did you do the bulk of the writing and she did the bulk of the research? Or how did that relationship yeah,
1: work? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Every Everybody asks that. And I'm not, I'm just, I think
0: it's an well, interesting Well, then I won't ask that, it. How about that? But I mean, no, it's, it's, it's
1: if, I, if I could come up with a couple of questions that everybody asked, that would be one. But everybody asked that. And I, think, I
0: tried to, I try to ask questions that nobody asked, but obviously well, I Well, but I mean, see, I,
1: that's, I guess because I'm a writer, I wouldn't have thought to ask that, but everybody asked, I guess it's. So familiar to me, the process, but it isn't to other people. No, what happened was we divided it. I wouldn't say in half. I did a a little bit more, but she is based in New York. Ewan is a reporter for CNBC and she's based in New York. So just about all the strictly New York stuff she did. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there was a lot of court. You can imagine it was a trial. There was a ton of courthouse documents and things like that. So if it dealt with the trial and the courthouse and anything with the legal aspect of it in New York, she dealt with she researched it and she wrote it. See, we didn't do a well, you'll give give me your research and I'll write it up. And then I edited it. And you know, I mean I certainly am more experienced than she is, so so Well you also have so to have
0: you also have to have one voice out of the book.
1: Yeah, that's so, uh, that's, you that's, know, your that's editing an excellent comes, point.
0: Right. So when she was looking at the archives, especially the court records, are those, because they go back so far, have they ever been digitized or are they still in paper form?
1: Most of them are digitized, believe it or not. Amazing. Now, huh. I say this and Yoon may contradict me. I, let me not, I don't want to say all of them are. Most of them are. It did entail Yoon going to the court of Believe me, she didn't do it all behind her desk. She did go and find things, but surprisingly... I'll be safe to say much of it's digitized.
0: The point of the book is that she was very instrumental in breaking the mob because she had an insight that nobody else on the Dewey team had. Can you fill that in a little bit for us as to why she had this unique perspective that allowed her to figure out a way to break Lucky Luciano?
1: Yeah, there's actually two answers to that. The initial one is Eunice. I I talked about my co-author being a bulldog. Well, she was too. Carter was also a bulldog. And she could sit for hours and hours and hours and sit through documents. While she was named to the team by Dewey, she worked for what was called then the Women's Court in New York. And frankly, it consisted a lot of prosecuting prostitutes, not solely that, but that was a lot of it. And so she happened to discover, you know, when she was going through these cases of prostitutes, that A lot of them had the same attorney. They had the same bail bondsman. Two or three names kept popping up. And that was odd in its own right. But then she thought these were expensive attorneys. These were not cheap (laughs) attorneys. And so she said, how does, you know, a penniless prostitute Afford these expensive attorneys, so she started putting two and two together. Like maybe the mobs involved with prostitution. Now it wasn't then, and and I was surprised. Everybody's surprised back then. You thought, well, of course the mob was always involved in prostitution. Well, that's debatable. It really wasn't. So, so Dewey didn't. Dewey, they didn't even think that prostitutes were involved with the mob. Well, then she said, maybe they are. We're getting this. This is just two and two. I'm getting four. And weirdly, or not so weirdly, Dewey didn't want to agree with that. Dewey said, let's not get into this. These are these are women. Most of them are drug addicts. I'm not going to leave myself open to, to this. And she got somebody else on the team who was a friend of hers and said, I'm almost sure this is what's going on. And they persuaded Dewey. So once they got that link, they were able to get the prostitutes who were in the room, you know, when there were discussions and things like that to to testify. And that's why the case was cracked, because of the testimony of the prostitutes. So that's the first answer to the question. And the second answer to your question, when they, you know, were talking to the prostitutes who they rounded up and tried to get them to testify and they didn't want to testify you can imagine they're like i don't want to you know do, do any of this you know they knew who they were involved with with mobsters they had Eunice talk to them you know i mean she 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 was very soft spoken i mean she just that was her demeanor anyway so she talked to them she essentially persuaded them to testify and i'm not sure any of these guys would have been able to do that you know that these were kind of tough attorneys in the 30s you know and they were all men so she was able to persuade them to testify. They testified, and that was that. And then it led
0: to the prosecution. And they had an interesting relationship, Dewey and Carter. They were opposite, you write in your book, they were opposite in personalities, and yet they were able to establish not just a relationship at that point, but for many years after.
1: Yes. She was quite loyal to Dewey. I mean, after... He was a special prosecutor, just, you know, assigned to get the mob, but then he became the prosecutor in New York and she worked for him then. And then he left, he eventually was elected governor, went to Albany, so he was no longer in New York City, but she kept, you know, they they wrote each other letters, they were friends. I think it was at least two of his three governor's runs, and I think it was all three. She um helped him, she helped him get the black vote. She was extremely loyal to him. Um, We have a couple letters. We have letters, you know, on and off between the two. And they they were, especially from her end, they were quite warm. I mean, they, you know, you could tell, well, they weren't super, super close friends. They were friends. It was far from just, you know, an employee-employer relationship. And also, he was a Republican. People may not know that, but Dewey was a Republican. And if you look at the history of the Republican Party, Black people were Republicans for a long time until, and I don't want a historian to contradict me here, but but it was, it was under FDR, under Franklin Roosevelt, they started becoming Democrats. And there were a lot of reasons behind that, which I won't get into. So a lot of her friends and colleagues became Democrats. She was a Republican her entire life. She never switched. And I don't know how much of that has to do with Dewey, but this loyalty to Dewey, she she was very loyal to him. Pretty much your whole
0: life. You mentioned the correspondence between the two. Where were you able to find those? I'm just curious from a technical point of view. Yeah,
1: we got those at University of Rochester. That's where Dewey's papers are. I'm not sure. You know, Dewey. People don't realize this because he was such a New Yorker. He's actually from um, Michigan. He's not a native New Yorker, but his papers are at the University of Rochester.
0: Oh, interesting. You mentioned earlier that it's so far back that this may not be a situation. But were you able to find any oral histories? That's
1: a great question because I'm trying to think real fast. No, but I, in projects I've done in the past, I found oral histories, and they're very valuable. And I'm just trying to think real fast if. We and can. also,
0: too, are there any? Even if it's not an oral history, are are there any recordings of her voice or her? There, video? We've
1: got very uh, not there's video, a, but film. Yeah, we've got like a eight ten second blip sound soundbite. It's it's video of that. I think Dewey, it doesn't look, Dewey, I think, planned this. It's Dewey and the back of Eunice's head and someone else. And they're, they're pretending like they're planning their strategy. And I think Dewey put that out. And that's really the only one we have. And she only says a couple words and Dewey is acting real tough for a couple seconds, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's the only one we, we have
0: of her actual boys. What about lessons that you learned or your co-author learned, or both of you learned from researching and writing this book and it doesn't necessarily have to be about Eunice but it could be about just things in general or society or philosophy psychology etc
1: yeah you know one of the questions we're still asking ourselves is the question that you asked at the beginning and why did we not know about her and why, why? And one of the reasons I, you and I are like, well, she was very low key. She wasn't a self promoter, but there were a lot of stories about her, not just in the black press at the time. It was huge news when she was named to the team in the black press and also in mainstream media. But why don't we know about her? Why don't we know about her mother? And this is, the, you know, I, I guess you're asking what lessons we, that's not a lesson. We just don't know why. And and one of the reasons I speculate is we seem to be hearing about the same people all the time. And that's not to put down people who've had multiple biographies, but it's like another biography of so-and-so, another biography of so-and-so. Let's go with somebody who's not well-known. Now it might, it might be because it is harder to get information on, on some people. This was hard to get information, as I said, until we kind of cracked the code. So I guess I would like to say, if you're doing something, do it on somebody who is Really accomplished and interesting, but not a well-known name. That's the big thing, and, and, and that's what I've done. My other work has been on that. And part of the problem is, do publishers want that? No, publishers like well-known names. So it's this it just, just is this snowballing effect <laughs> where you know you're not going to get a publisher unless the person's a well-known name. So you're not going to do anything on that person. It's like the but, um, echo chamber. Yeah, that that's exactly it goes what it around is. And around. One quick note, and I mean this—I just want to say this because a lot of people don't know this, and we didn't know this. You know, Lucky Luciano—he—he he was prosecuted and it was thirty to sixty years, but he never served his term. Did, did you know? <laughs> I mean, tell yes, people this. Yes. And, is
0: it because of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in World War II?
1: Yeah, yeah. People don't know this, and and they wanted him to help on the docks during World War II. So they said, if you help us, to, there's no sabotage on the docks with the Italian dock workers. We'll we'll. You know, send you back to Italy because he was from Italy, and they did. So people are, are always surprised that he was. He lived. To, I don't know, I think he lived to be in his sixties in in Italy. And, yeah, you know, he, he
0: he worked out that deal. I, yes, that's yeah, part of the World yeah. War Two history. What's been the reaction to your book from the mainstream press, the black press, etc.? Have Have you heard back from people in terms of the fact that they may not have heard about this person, and then they're amazed at her accomplishments?
1: Yeah, it's mixed. I mean, on one hand, you know, we actually the BBC, BBC radio of all outlets did a half hour on her and not just just not just us. I mean, they interviewed other people, but they did interview us. BBC and, you know, go figure. I, you know, I mean, I'm not I'm just saying that that was a surprise. The Mob Museum, of course, was interested. And they're interested in unknown figures in the mob. I think I give them credit because it's not just the well-known figures. Um, yeah, we've had some kind of national publicity. And I don't know. I never know what to expect with a book. I mean, sometimes you don't expect much and you get a lot. And sometimes, you know, you it's the other way around. We had Ms. Magazine online. You know, I did an essay on her. so So we've gotten some traction as far as... Certain elements of her, I mean, Ms. was interested, of course, because she was a woman, you know, she was a black woman, very, and BBC was asking about her struggle, you know, what kind of barriers, you know, did she have to overcome? So uh, so there's a lot of aspects to this story. But I'm
0: surprised and, so that the black media would not have been very responsive to somebody, again, who's not well known and yet has accomplished so much.
1: Well, um, actually, it's funny you would mention that because um, I actually have a friend who knows somebody at one of the black newspapers in New York. Now, Grant, and, I, and he told them about the book, and I, maybe we haven't pushed enough, but that's a, a great question on the face of it, and also because, you know, the Black media was really interested in her during her life. They did many, many stories on her because she was very accomplished, and and if you don't know much about the Black media, there were, you know, while she was in her heyday, there were a handful of papers all over the country, not just in New York, so there were stories about her in papers, not just in New York, but all over, particularly in Philadelphia. They, they did a lot at Baltimore. And
0: there's now um, an, a lot Chicago. of national black publications as well as BET. I'm surprised none of them would have picked this up, especially just from the angle of here's a major person who accomplished so much and not a lot was known about her at, at this time.
1: Yeah. Well, some of these places that you're mentioning, they'll they'll have her on their website. You know what I mean? They don't totally ignore her. But like I said, it's this, oh, we have half a page on her. You know, that kind of thing. So it's not a matter of ignoring, per se, but you have to look for it. Last question.
0: What was the best thing you took away from writing this book?
1: Boy, that's a that's a tough question. The best thing that I took
0: away. Or the well, most insightful part of the book for you.
1: Well, I think, the, you know, either question. With women... Sometimes you know women in the workplace, especially. It's like, how do you navigate? If, if, if you're upset about something, do you do you go and you know to HR? Or to, do you keep it to yourself? You know what do you do? What's the best way to navigate in in the work? This has been the question for a hundred years, and I think Eunice did a good job of. She was her own person. She spoke up, but she she felt if I if I overdo it, people are going to ignore me. They're not. You know I'm not going to get where I want to go. So. I admire her for being able to walk the line of succeeding without being a doormat, but she's not the other way. We, oh, don't say a word to her. She'll just rant and rave and we don't want that. You know, I mean, there is an art to that. And, and to this day, I think there's an art to it. And I think she managed that and she was, she was quite clever.
0: Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been <laughs> Marilyn Greenwald, author along with Yoon Lee of Eunice Hunton Carter, A Lifelong Fight for Social Justice, published by Empire State Editions, Fordham University Press. For everything about Marilyn Greenwald and to order the book, go to EuniceCarterBio.com and you can follow Marilyn on Twitter at mgreenwaldou. Marilyn, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear, on Ira's Everything Bagel.